On this episode of AvTalk, Seth Miller joins us as he and Jason take in the Airline Passenger Experience Expo in Boston. We revisit some of the aviation mistakes made last week, and with a Bloomberg report suggesting that Emirates could take over Etihad, we try to envision what a merger between the two carriers might look like. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here joined as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello. We also and have... And as sp- sometimes with... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a sometimes special person? It seems like it. Hi, this is uh, Seth Miller. And Jason and, and Seth are both in Boston right now at the Apex Expo. So, gentlemen, welcome from Boston. Thank you. In fitting nature, I went to the Airline Passenger Experience Expo on Amtrak Northeast Regional, which is exactly the opposite of flying, I think. What would the opposite of flying be? That might be it. Perhaps the bus that I took to get here instead? Oh, yeah. So Seth took a bus and I took a regional train. It was not what we should have done, but it worked. So this is the Planes, Trains, and Automobiles at podcast this it week? It is now. All right, then. Well, how are things going at the Airline Passenger Experience Expo? Well, we've hosted the podcast a couple times from the show in Hamburg, which is about 10 times the size of this show. So this one's a little more... More Inti- than that, but yeah. Yeah, more than 10 times. It's it's more intimate. You see more of the people you know because they're not in back-to-back meetings for five days. But it's been good. Some little announcements here or there, probably nothing that will be super thrilling to our listeners. But there's, there's a couple weird side projects that companies have going on. And I feel like Seth wants to talk about them. Yeah, you know, I, I, what I would say is there's enough news that's going to affect the industry that I, I wouldn't dismiss these small announcements as too small, right? I mean, we know that airlines are going to spend more and more airlines are going to make the commitment and get online. And we're going to learn, we've learned it two of two of them already. And we're going to learn of two or three more this week or three of them already, at least, right? right? And so none of them are necessarily huge fleets. Like an order for two aircraft to have connectivity doesn't matter, but it, it kind of does. It does. It means that even little airlines, like I'm going to butcher the, the pronunciation, La Compagnie. La Compagnie or whatever. And there are two Airbus A321 NEOs will have Wi-Fi like they promised to do for from day one and lied about. Because they're only five years late. Yeah, so they're five years late, but they're, they're doing it. But that's a big deal when a tiny, tiny, tiny little airline with two planes decides, okay, we're going to offer connectivity. Because this has really been a big airlines game for the better part of a decade. Yeah. And so I find that really interesting. The other part is, is you sort of mentioned some of these side projects. I'm not... Sure, necessarily they're side projects as opposed to littler things that aren't really. They're not the main attraction, but they're the also featuring. Right. And so one of them is, you know, we hear about Internet of Things and Internet of Crap, and you can call it whatever you want. I'm, I'm it's not. One of my favorite Twitter accounts. Yeah. Internet I, of. Yeah. Let's PCs? just go with crap. Yeah. We'll put a link in the show yes. notes. I don't want to say that it's that we've gotten past the crap and like Internet of Things is going to take over aviation, but. Now that the onboard Wi-Fi infrastructure is starting to become more prevalent and usable and maybe even a little more reliable. I'm not talking about necessarily the link off the plane yet because we know we have problems there. But sort of the onboard hardware is getting better. We're seeing things like Astronics, which is most well-known for being the people that give you the M-Power power adapters. They put 90-plus percent of power plugs on airplanes. But they also make all the little motors that make your business class seat recline and they make all the flashlights that the flight attendants use for emergency kits and they make half the passenger service units in the world. They they do all of these emergency kits that go in the life raft. Right. But one of the things they're showing off is a overhead bin in like a smart bin system. And what it basically does is has a little sensor that installs, that takes up no space. And when you put bags in, 
it detects that they're there and it marks the bin as full and it can know if it's a full size bag or a half size. It knows how thick it is, all these things. And that data can get relayed wirelessly to a head end unit. Now, that seems stupid and like a waste of energy. And why would you do that? But you then take that information. You can transmit it off the aircraft to the gate agent. If the gate agent actually knows when the bins are full, they don't start, you know, just ch- taking bags when group two's boarding and you get on board and you find that there's still plenty of room for your overhead that you had to, you were forced to gate check. Right. No more hunting to find a bin that actually has space, even though it's closed and you get yelled at for even opening it to look inside. Right. They can put in a little LED on the outside with green or red. The other thing about it that we're talking about sort of some of the passenger facing nice to haves. One of the other things that the kit has in it is a temperature, humidity, pressure, and smoke detector, essentially, sort of ambient particle sensor in it. And one of the interesting statistics they have is that with most lithium-ion battery fires, the off-gassing of the battery, sort of the initial failure, happens six minutes before smoke and flame. So if they can detect those chemicals from the battery five minutes before the overhead bin catches on fire, that's a big, big win, right? Then you can actually alert the flight attendants. They can grab their containment bag. It can be handled expeditiously, but not in what appears to be a panic. Right. It's the difference between stopping a fire before it starts and putting out a fire that has already started. And could be the difference between containing and diverting. Right. I don't know the actual SOP of when they have to divert versus not, but like there's some real value that could come from these things. Now, this is brand new, first time it's being shown off, unclear if it will ever actually see the light of day outside a trade show. But there are some interesting little things like that going on. And, you know, we're on day one now. We'll spend the next couple of days wandering through here. I expect that there'll be some other weird, quirky things like that that'll be kind of cool. Speaking of weird, quirky things, I, I knew you guys were going to be there and it popped into my brain earlier today is, did anyone ever actually buy and install or plan to install that induction cooktop that Lufthansa Technique was I know showcasing at AIX? several airlines actually bought that. I don't know if Qatar is one of them, but I know Lufthansa Systems, no, Lufthansa Technique has several customers for that, but I don't know if anyone is actually out in the wild with that just yet. Okay, so we'll have to, to so keep we'll, an eye we'll have on to wait to uh, get your fresh cooking. pasta primavera on board until we can locate one of those on an airplane. I'm looking, looking forward, forward to it. I still want the cookie warmer to take flight, man. Mm. Oh, that would be great. I forgot about that. Yeah, B Rockwell's not here at this show, so we can't get an update on it. Yeah, that cookie warmer. Yeah, and the champagne chiller. Yeah. That was good. Heaven in the what, one the, little wall the, the magic of heat exchangers. Yep, magic. Actually, just magic. Well, that, that's, you know, flying is magic, right? That's true. Yeah. There you go. I'm completely okay with that. Have we had this conversation before? No, it was brought up. So I was at uh, Dorkfest and Spot LAX this weekend, and we had a great time. And after I landed back in Chicago from LA, I I just posted a thing. You know, I I was sitting in you know the the seat and looking out the window as the as the sun set behind me, flying from LA to Chicago. And I thought this is you know this is pretty great. The engineering prowess of Boeing and Rolls-Royce on the 757 and, and the people that were you know flying the plane and, and working in the cabin, this is a pretty great thing. And somebody you know posted, you forgot the, the magic part. And I go, well, it feels like, you know, it isn't magic, but it, fe- it does feel like magic. Yeah. I did okay in physics class and I get lift, thrust, drag, whatever. Like I get all those things, but I'm equally happy just to accept that flying is magic. 
I really don't care. So <laughs> how was Dorkfest and Spot LAX 2018? Dorkfest and Spot LAX 2018 were a wonderful time. And I'm definitely going to make this a, a yearly visit and expand my my time there next year for sure, rather than making it a, a it's a doable day trip from Chicago, but it's a long day. I left the house at 4.15. I walked back in the door at 11.15 at night. So it was a long day, but well worth it. I mean, obviously, LAX is, you know, a spotter's paradise. There's all sorts of, you know, heavy metal coming in all the time. But it was – Dorkfest was a, a wonderful experience because it's always great to to talk to so many people who who share your same passion. I mean, we get to we get to talk all the time, but it's very rare that you have you know over a hundred people who are just as excited about the airplanes overhead, if not more so. There were some people there that that were clearly more into aviation than than even I was, and bless them for that. But it was a great time. Yeah, I, I will say one of the tweets I saw that was interesting about it was sort of a commentary of, "It's amazing to me that all these people that love nothing more than airplanes." show up at the sort of Mecca or one of the great places to take pictures of airplanes and then end up just talking to each other instead of taking pictures of the planes. Well, exactly. (laughs) And I think that's sort of a great commentary on, you know, as crazy as we all are in whatever way you want to use that word, there is a good opportunity to sort of be together, be involved, sort of have those relationships and have that community that you don't always recognize is there. Yeah, I mean, it, especially because of the way the industry is. I mean, it's literally all over the world, and and so you, the magic of the internet brings people together in in ways that you could never do beforehand. I mean, I know my love for aviation ha- has grown because of the ability to connect with people over the internet who also love that. But it's also nice that you can get together and, and talk to people in person and and have, you know, have a conversation where, where you're not waiting for somebody to respond and, and you can actually, you know, see the, the look on their faces. Like uh, the look on my face, there, there was a gentleman there from South Africa who was there because he listened to the last episode of the podcast. You know, he walked over to me and introduced himself and he, he said, he you know, walked hi. walked over from South Africa? That's impressive. Yes, yes. he walked over all the all way from South Africa and said, you know, hi, I just want to let you know that I'm, you know, I'm from Johannesburg and, and I came today because I heard about the event on your podcast and I almost fell over. I was like, that's dedication. And he clearly saw that I was, you know, very taken aback. And he goes, no, 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 no. I, I was in Los Angeles. I was going to be here already, but I, I came to this particular place because I heard it on your podcast. Okay. okay that, that makes a little more sense, but, but still, I mean, for somebody to come all that way, it was, yeah. uh, I was, hello, Mr. South African listener. Thanks for showing up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. I missed it this year. This, the conference that we're at now is actually usually in Southern California, either Long Beach, Anaheim, or next year it's in LA. So I'm usually at uh, Dorkfest and Spot LX. And I keep thinking in my head that we're in LA because I associate this show with the West Coast so much. But next year, I will actually, I don't know, this show is early next year. This show is so early next year. We'll see. You'll have to make two two journeys or just stay in LA. Or just stay. Worst there things happened. Exactly. So it was a great time. I had a, a fantastic time talking to people. We gave away a bunch of Flight Rated 24 subscriptions and 
t-shirts and keychains and all sorts of good fun stuff. The coolest part about it for me was talking to the kids that were there and how fascinated they were by the the aircraft. There was we ended the day at the Proud Bird, which Jason and Seth, I know you're familiar, but for anyone who's not, it's a restaurant basically at the end of the South Runway complex. Uh, the west end or the east end of the south runways complex at LAX. So you, you're very in very good spotting. Is it the north end or south end? I think, I think it's, the, it's south. the south. In and out? No, no, it's, it's, it's the, uh, I'm sorry. on the other side. Yeah, sorry, Proudbirds on the south, In and Out's the north. I apologize. So we're, we're sitting there, and, and the day's winding down, and I'm I'm about to head back to the airport. And there, there's two kids with you know one of them's got like an iPhone or something like that. The other one's got kind of like a handheld camera, and they're just narrating the the flights that are coming in. And it was fun to listen to because they were so excited about seeing things that they I mean, they're local kids, so they've probably seen them a million times. But they were they were just having a lot of fun and, and shouting out when they would see the A three eighties or things like that. So that that was really neat to watch them get just as excited about stuff as everyone else sitting there at, at the table was. Nice. Also on Saturday, the first A three fifty ULR went home to Singapore. And it and went, it went home long the long way. way. Why did it go the long way? Well, Airbus said that it was for uh, performance checks. I believe Singapore wanted to take it home the long way to to do some performance checks and things like that. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I was statically surprised that Airbus replied to me, sort of, even though I didn't mention them when I replied to the flight radar account saying, why is it doing this? And Airbus managed to reply. So it's <laughs> kind of crazy that they were monitoring that. Yeah. Um, kudos to that social media team. But- you know, what's interesting to me, and I, I thought about it a little bit, is if, if you're Singapore Airlines, right, none of the test flights are going to be 14, 15, 16 hours. You get a few hours here and there, but the, you know, customer flights, the proving flights that you get from Airbus are relatively short. And so if you've already got a 10 to 12 hour flight plan lined up to get back to Singapore, and this plane is legit only ever going to fly 18 hour flights. Right. Nothing else. Nothing else, right? It's going to go from Singapore to the United States and back. Yep. Um, the shortest flight it's going to do is Singapore, San Francisco, which I think is like 17, 16 yeah. and a half. You may, you're going to want to know some of the performance profile. This is the first of that type ever made. It's got the auxiliary fuel tanks. It's got all these things. So I can understand wanting to fly it long enough such that the auxiliary fuel tank in the tail cone gets empty or whatever other sort of performance metrics they wanted to work on. I could also see, you know, going super far north to test how the satellite Wi-Fi is working. Um, yeah. Although that, <laughs> we, we should just say it's figure out where it's going to shut off because it doesn't work right. over the pole. And we know that, but th- there are some of these interesting things that I can come up with. And if you're Singapore airlines and it's got to fly, you know, you need to do a 16 hour test flight. You may as well start with one that was already 12 hours long. Cause then you're only loading four extra hours of fuel instead of loading 16 hours of fuel. Yeah, it makes good sense to do this, especially when you've already got the flight lined up. And really, when you when you think about it, what's a couple extra hours? I mean, to, to get all of those things. And it could have been testing all of those things. Sure. And, you know, maybe they wanted to make sure the pilots were comfortable with the crew rest bunks. I don't know. I mean, you know, make sure that the, the chairs in there are comfortable. Or I'm sure that they had a very long list of things to do on that flight. Yeah. I do think it's interesting in that typically delivery flights are the sort of like, I mean, you know, I'm sure you guys remember the Air Baltic that like the A220 slash C series that flew home, landed in Riga and 45 minutes later departed on a commercial service, right? So sometimes the planes go immediately into service. This one, they have a little bit of a window before that happens anyways, but it's they got to put it through its paces and start early. 
Yeah, so it, it'll be interesting to see what they do prior to the entry into commercial service, which is in two and a half weeks time. October 11th, I believe. Yeah. Yep. So we're, we're about two and a half weeks away now. So it'll be interesting to see if, if they do anything with the aircraft you know, beforehand that includes a, another long flight or something like that. But we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Set your alerts. Already done. So th- yeah, the first one is 9VSGA for those that are you know, looking to track the, the ULR. There's no separate type code or, or filter to use because it's just, as far as the type code is concerned, it's just an A350-900, A359, but it'll be filterable by the registration. The funniest thing to happen last week was uh, kind of an oops moment. And Seth, I know that you've been keen to talk about this. Is this the Cafe moments? Yeah, Cafe this is, had this a is Cafe moments week last week. Cafe Pacific? Pacific. Yes. Yeah. No Fs left to give. People had so much fun with headlines and captions on this one. But what I appreciate the most is that Cathay also had much fun. Airbus tried one upping Cathay on their A220 cabin mock up. Let's zoom in right here. A220 fam. It's fam lie. Fam lie. Fam lie. They forgot the I. Oops. Yeah. So a little homage yeah, there to Cathay. Yeah, we'll know. go with homage. That's, yeah. that, that's the word. So it's going around recently. Use spell check, people. I just, I'm very confused how well, remember, I could understand. Air, aircraft painting remains totally manual. Completely manual. Also, that makes you think like the guys putting the masking on, right? They have like these big paper cutouts of, you know, heavy duty like masking paper and then they tape over it and this and that. You'd think they'd be like, huh, last time we did this, we were like three windows down. Are you sure we're in the right place? You know, there's just a guy looking at the sheet, looking at the plane, saying the the work order says Cathay Pacific. I'm painting Cathay Pacific. You, you think someone mistyped <laughs> the work order? Possibly. And he just goes, it, not my it, job. It printed wrong. I mean, because correct me if I'm wrong, I, I thought that they were, the words were full sheets. I mean, from what I've seen, it's not individual letters. It, it's it's the words that come out in those sheets and they're basically, you know, So you think on. you think the mask cut was done wrong? I would assume that that would have to be it because it was all the, the kerning on the incorrect letters were was all correct. correct. So it was very weird to me that like the F was just missing. Yeah. Um, because if they took the time to like chop off the F and then very clearly line up the I's and the following C, that doesn't make much sense to me. It make what, what I kind of assume happened is, you know, they, they put the thing on, they, they sprayed it and then they took it off. And then somehow it made it past the guy who looked at it and was like, yeah, okay, that's good enough. And then it flew to Hong Kong. Yeah. No drip lines. We're done. I was like, all right. No no one noticed that there was like an extra pint of blue paint still. They were just really efficient. Yeah. So that was bad. But, you know, sort of an honest mistake kind of thing. I can almost understand it. The other thing that Cathay Pacific managed to do is publish an advertisement for the new nonstop flight to Washington, D.C., to Dulles. And it's got like a picture as like the back of a guy wearing this neon uh, sign on his back that says IAD-HKG. And he's looking over an absolutely sort of stereotypical Asia skyline. And it makes sense. It's, you know, I I completely understand the image and what they're going for. And he's standing on top of a building in Shanghai. Close enough. It's like they grabbed a stock photo and they did this, but like, eh, Shanghai, it's all sort of China-ish. They're they're not alone. The the MTA in New York City that operates the trains has a bunch of ads all over the city saying how they're going to improve. But a lot of the backgrounds they've used for those pictures is actually the London Underground. 
So really? the people doing the artwork don't always know what they're That's looking awkward. at. Yeah, that, that, they got called out for that one. And there's the part where Taiwan issued 200,000 passports using Dulles as what was supposed to be Chiang Kai-shek International. Yep. So it happens. But the Which, to be really fair, was designed as, with an homage to Ira Saranian, who did design the internet as a sort of main terminal building at Dulles, but awkward. So it probably, it probably got confused in the stock photo search. Yeah. They're like, yeah, it looks the same. And it turns out that people have been using that stock photo of Dulles and claiming it to be Taiwan for like five years. I went back when that happened in January and found old magazines of like the, you know, like you check into a hotel and you get like the discover whatever city you're in. The Taiwan version of that or the Taipei version of that had their uh, their version available online. And I went back and found, I think, at least three years old, someone claiming that same image as being the Taiwan airport. Taipei Airport. All right, then. So not entirely their fault, but also someone probably should have checked. Yeah. So I guess what we're saying is double check these things before we get into it. Before you paint something on a plane or print a passport, maybe double check. Also, like, who am I to talk about this sort of thing? Because I'm sure I've screwed up way more than the average guy. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, like I said, I really appreciate that Cathay had a, a good sense of humor about it. And, and it's I, I think it's already been fixed. So they painted it white, put some more green paint on it, and and the F is back in there. But what they also did last week was Cathay retired the well, they retired it out of service in May. You gotta get this right. Be careful. Okay, I'll be very careful. They retired the aircraft from commercial service in May. It sat kind of in limbo because there was a question of where the aircraft was going to go. But now the Pima Air and Space Museum took delivery last week of the first 777 ever built. Not to be confused with the first 777 ever put into commercial passenger service. Which is still flying flying around around with United and probably will be forever. Probably. There was a lot of confusion about that. People saying, wait, how could it be Cathay when United launched the 777? Well, this was actually the first airframe and it had remained a test airframe up until the year 2000, I think? Yes, until 2000. Cycles and low mileage, right? Yeah, but I'm guessing putting it through its test aircraft routine probably takes a chunk out of the lifespan. I don't really know. I guess do those not count? I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, it, I, I don't know. But, but it also had it was also re-engined before it was delivered to Cathay because Cathay's fleet was a Rolls Royce fleet, and it was test uh, the test airframe was a, a GE engine. So they re-engined it before delivering it to Cathay, and then it flew for some forty thousand hours with Cathay, and then it retired in in May, and then they delivered it to Pima last, last week. And I think I read so, that this is the only triple seven that had ever had a swap of engine manufacturer. Actually, that is correct. So it, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I don't think I haven't heard anything about them putting the GE engines back on it. Or if they're going to repaint it into the Boeing kind of test house livery, uh, which I think would be really cool, or at least maybe do like one side or something like that. But you know, who I don't know. I'm sure uh, that's all dependent on I've, how much money they have I've to, been to, Pima to before, put into it. And they've got a good collection of military stuff. They're also adjacent to Davis Monthan Air Base, which is where they store all the military aircraft for either future use or just for purgatory, I guess. But they, when I was there a number of years ago, they had a China Southern 737, maybe three or, or a 400. 
chilling out there in China's Southern deliveries. Since then, they've taken delivery of uh, one of the original 787s, and now they've got the, the first 777. So they've got a good collection. And I, if you happen to find yourself in that chunk of Arizona, I highly recommend it. Yeah. So Tucson, Arizona is where they're located. And, and there's a lot of great stuff you know, throughout Arizona. But I think if, if you're headed to Arizona for, for some museum pieces, that, that's a great place to start. Shall we take a quick break and then come back and talk about another oops, a not oops, and then a whole bunch of people that freaked out for no reason? Sure. Sound good? All right. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we are back with AvTalk. Jason and Seth Miller joining us for this episode from Boston at the Apex Expo, enjoying things there. So we talked about a little bit of a typo. A bigger of a mistake happened uh, last week when an Air India plane landed on a not yet open runway in Maldives. Yeah, they tried so opening kind, the runway kind of a couple days too soon. Yeah. So they were in the process of building an A380 capable runway in the Maldives and it was nearly complete. Uh, like the, the runway itself was, you know, paved and, and almost ready. They were just putting the finishing touches on it. And the Air India A320 didn't realize that it was lined up with the, the wrong runway and, and decided to land there. And there was some sort of construction material that got all caught up underneath in the undercarriage. So that was a very interesting thing to see the pictures of. And the runway is since open to an Etihad A380. Yeah. So they now have A380 service. Well, they had one A380 service. Now they're, they're back to A320s from, from Etihad. But, but, you know, not a mistake anymore. No. So speaking of uh, mistaking runways, how about mistaking a taxiway for a runway? That's a very bad thing that you should never do. And the NTSB had quite a bit to say about that today. Yeah, I was trying to catch up with that as much as I could while Seth here was moderating a panel. I had headphones in trying to listen to the NTSB meeting about the Air Canada 320 or whatever Air, A320 family aircraft it was that tried accidentally landing on one of the taxiways at SFO and nearly did so. Went around with only, what, 10 to 20 feet left before they slammed into a bunch of other aircraft on the taxiway. And the NTSB yeah, had there, there a lot the of things to say about that from a breakdown of crew resource management, CRM, to NOTAMS, which is noticed to airmen being ridiculously unusable. There were 27 pages of NOTAMS and the runway closure for the parallel runway was on page like 9 of 27, which was unusable. The Air Canada pilot was on reserve and had been awake for 19 hours and Canadian rules are more lenient than US rules. So in the US, he wouldn't even have been allowed to fly an aircraft if he was based in the the US, the FAA not implementing changes to aircraft surveillance technology that the FAA decided they that was impractical. So there's blame to go all around. And they were not shy to say that this was literally, quite literally, seconds away from being one of, if not the most deadly disaster in aviation history. Yeah, this would have yeah. made Tenerife look mild problem. Yeah, this would have been a fully loaded A320 slamming into a wide body on the taxiway and then another one behind it and another behind it. This would have been catastrophic and it was literally seconds, feet away from happening. And there were so many failure points along the way that they are just 
it was down to sheer luck that it did not happen. Well, yeah. And this is one of those things where we always talk about this every time there is an incident or there's almost an incident where it's, there's never just one thing. Right. You know, it's, it's always a, a series it's a of cascading failures. So this seems like it was several big things. It was big things. It was the the crew was fatigued. Yeah. They didn't set the um, localizer or the ILS or the the safety mechanisms on the aircraft weren't able to tell them that they weren't lined up at the runway. The uh, systems air ca- traffic controllers have isn't designed to alert them of an aircraft trying to land on a taxiway. It's designed for um, the wrong wrong runway, but it was never designed for the wrong taxiway. Who would ever do that? Who would do that? But that seems to have changed, but only at SeaTac. They haven't rolled that out elsewhere yet. So this was mistake after mistake after unexpected consequence that really could have gone horribly wrong. The one thing I'll say, as you said, it was sort of sheer luck that this didn't end badly. And I, I'm not sure I agree with that. Oh, no? Explain. I think that there were a whole lot of ways that a whole lot of systems that get involved and nearly every one of them failed. And in this case, honestly, like the reason it, they probably survived is that the other pilots on the ground on the same frequency called out like, you're going to hit us, go go away. And here's why I think it's sheer luck. If anyone else on that frequency had already been talking they wouldn't have been able to transmit that message because sometimes you get long messages. If you get a foreign carrier, they speak slower. A simple uh, transmission that might take five seconds could take them 30 seconds. And those other pilots on the ground would not have been able to say anything because we're in an analog world still when it comes to radio chatter. And Hey, you're lined up on the taxiway would not have worked. Right. And they would not even have known that they would have been stepped on and no one would have heard that. Yeah. Fair. But I I still... I don't want to say it's completely luck. I think I think there was a you know that implies that the at the end of the day that this entire system is based on like roll the dice and hope for the best. And I think maybe when all else fails, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, but I, I think there are so many levels of redundancy and reliability and safety checks and all of those other things. Doesn't mean they all can't fail, but ultimately, I, I don't think it's just pure luck. No, but in this case, I'm going with luck. We'll drink more and discuss later. Okay. In any case, we'll we'll put a link to the NTSB docket in the show notes so that if you do want to really dig into all the recommendations that the NTSB has for these types of situations, you, you can do so at your uh, at your reading pleasure. I can't wait to see what recommendations the NTSB makes that the FAA scoffs at and doesn't yeah. implement. I, I would wait. like to note that Jason was clearly not paying attention during my session that he was sitting in the audience for, so mm-hmm. that was noticeable. <laughs> at least he was present in the set i don't know how to spin that in jason's favor now nah, to be fair though when i needed him he had finished and i called on him accidentally in the crowd and he chimed up pretty quickly with accurate data yeah, so i was half paying attention it was useful <laughs> i feel like that that's the general gist of things jason half paying attention what i wasn't paying attention all right fair enough so Last week, these things that that happened last week are all kind of, you know, head scratchers. And and one of them was there was a UPS plane over Los Angeles and it had a chase plane. And so people started tweeting us saying, what is happening? A lot of people that were tweeting us were very concerned that it looked like a military aircraft that was following and, and nobody had a good picture. So it was very confusing and then somebody took a picture and I'm like, well, that's a UPS MD-11. So, that's that's weird. Why would a UPS MD-11 be around? And then it looked like another picture and it turns out that it was a Learjet 25 and then 
two and two that came together, and of course they're filming a commercial. All I'm meanwhile, surprised they're using the three holer instead of the seven four eight. Yeah, well, well, they used all of them, but it, apparently people weren't paying attention when that was happening. So they've they've got a new livery painted on on a bunch of different aircraft. So they used they used a seven five seven, an MD eleven, and a seven four seven at least, and, and maybe a seven six seven, but I'm not sure. To fly over LA and and out over the bay, do some turns around one of the islands off the coast, and, and then they came back, and and I'm sure they're going to have some. Incredible footage from from Wolf Air to, to work with, but it was just they didn't say anything. And usually, when there's that type of action happening, somebody says something because in the past these things have happened where people get very concerned and they make phone calls. And I know in, in New York, a couple times people have called nine one one. And now New York's actually really good about putting out, you know, hey, we're going to have X number of planes doing this thing at this time at this altitude. Sometimes they're too good and they ruin uh, special livery unveilings. Ah. That's right. The fire department for JetBlue, yeah. they posted a picture of it before JetBlue wanted it posted. Whoops. They're like, if you see this plane flying up the Hudson tomorrow, don't be worried. Oh, man. And then they pulled it, but not – like JetBlue clearly got oh, touched up yeah. and they pulled it, but screen grabs are forever. Right. Oops. Speaking of well, um, yeah. glamour shots, did do we know of anyone that may have managed to get the, the shot of the 225 over the Golden Gate Bridge or is that just never happening? As far as I know, it's never happening. I mean, I somebody had to have gotten the shot. Somebody somewhere, but I have not been able to track down anything uh, on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or, or anything like that. And I've been looking. So if anyone is able to track it down, please, please, please point point us to it because I I really want to see that picture and it has to exist. I I, I refuse to believe that no one took that photo. Yeah, has to be out there somewhere. Even if there's like an errant traffic camera pointed in the right direction, somebody find I mean, it. Yeah, I mean, like like one of those toll cameras on the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, that that would just be that would be fine. So wait, how many axles do they have to pay? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, a lot of, it's a lot of axles on that Eight, thing. It's way more than eighteen wheels. That 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 God, I can't imagine what the toll fee would be for that. I think it's sixteen sixteen axles. Okay, so. Yeah, I, I don't want to know what that fee is on the Golden Gate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you could probably pay for a whole new bridge. <laughs> so there's one thing that a few people wrote in to, to request that we talk about, and I hesitate to do it because it's one of those things where it could happen, it might happen, it probably won't happen, who knows what'll happen. But Bloomberg reported that Emirates is considering taking over Etihad. And a normal business, that would be interesting. And there would be some complications as far as regulatory things go and things like that. But when you bring in the fact that these, you know, Etihad's the flag carrier for the Emirates, Emirates is what it is. I mean, you introduce an insane number of complications. And so I feel like we should just talk about a few of those. And Seth, I know you addressed this uh, earlier in the week, I think in a, in a post as well. What it comes down to is like you get the, the efficiency of a hub operation and all of those things that make it make sense for airline mergers to happen, right? You know, route networks that are compatible, you got, you reduce back office expenses, you reduce marketing. There's a lot of reasons you do it, but you almost never do it with two hubs 70 miles apart. And you certainly don't do it with two hubs 70 miles apart where you can't actually really grow one of them at all, right? The Dubai International Airport is full. 
for all intents and purposes. They're trying to get Dubai World Center, which is sort of halfway between Dubai and Abu Dhabi, to become a thing. But much like Fetch, it's not going to be a thing. I get it. Uh, thank God someone does. <laughs> so it's an interesting challenge. And maybe DWC eventually does happen, but I don't think that comes along without some sort of governmental mandate that similar to how LaGuardia JFK or Dulles DCA happened, which is the government says, okay, you just can't fly here anymore. Or you can only fly certain planes here. Right. And so there, there's nowhere to grow it. You can't add another runway. You can't add more terminal at this point. It's built into the middle of the city. It's done from an expansion perspective. So then the question is, is there a reasonable way to link those runways and those terminal buildings to other runways and facilities where planes can park? Because one of the problems with DWC is the, the architecture was interesting. It's sort of a modular design, but they only built sort of the head end, the first piece. And it's one big building. It can handle, I mean, what is it, 10 or 12 gates, probably? And they're all yeah. bus gates, which is not an ideal situation. No, but there is also nobody there now. But there's no one there, right? But if they wanted to grow out, they can, and they've got the land set aside, and they've got blueprints, and they, they've got the engineering done, but construction takes time. And you can't just show up and be like, okay, well, all the planes have to move to DWC today. Right. And Emirates doesn't want to move there. They've tried multiple times, not Emirates, but the government has tried multiple times to convince people to move down and no one do when they Never do when they, sh- they come back because p- passengers won't go there because there's no infrastructure. Because It's sort of chicken and the egg at that point, but it's just not happening. And so until there's a compelling reason to do it, and the other infrastructure comes up around it. And I, I understand from friends that there is a lot more construction ongoing near DWC and it is rapidly sort of coming together, but still not enough to be a thing. And so the the concept, and I admit that it is sort of out there, Jetsons style, futuristic, who the hell knows if it's going to work, is, but it's something that the director, president, whatever, of Dubai Airports Authority has been talking about at conferences for probably three years now, is essentially stopping building new terminal buildings that are these full-service luxury malls and lounges and such, and start building Hyperloop stations. And he he's careful not to use the phrase Hyperloop, which makes me think that... High-speed transport. Yeah, you know, high-speed pod-style transport systems. He He's careful, which makes me think that They've got locals trying to develop and knock off the technology, in a, you know, so it can be a homegrown thing in some ways. But if that sort of thing came around, you know, the analogy I draw is if you go to Atlanta and you've got to connect from T to E, you go downstairs, you hop on the air plane train, plane train, right? You ride it for five minutes, you go back upstairs. You don't care that that ride was three quarters of a mile or 35 miles. As long as it's just five minutes, it's fine. And so there's other places around the world where this starts to make sense. I think you guys, we guys, I don't know, Flight Radar was tracking at one point some of the noise testing flights for that little airport east of Amsterdam, right? That they're trying to reopen with some larger planes. And maybe that one's not right, but it's pretty close. And you could use Skipple as the terminal and just sort of shuttle people across town to use that. Or if that doesn't work out well enough, use Rotterdam, which is maybe not a long enough runway for wide bodies, but you could use it for all the single aisle stuff, flying domestic hops or not domestic Schengen hops, right? The short haul stuff, right? There's some interesting opportunities to do that. Delhi or Mumbai, the new Mumbai airport is considered a target market because it's going to be for the current one again is at capacity. 
and they're building this new one 30 miles away and you got to move people back and forth or wholesale cut over. But it seems a shame to get rid of decent existing infrastructure where it is, in fact, still decent. So why don't, why don't we take that logic and close Newark, close JFK, close LaGuardia, move everything up to Stewart or somewhere else upstate, and then just uh, hyperloop everyone up there. Okay. Yeah. It would resolve the problem of the airspace being terrible, which ends up staggering across the entire country and the world, quite honestly. And yeah, well, just move everything upstate. Problem solved. Except if you live upstate and, you know, went there for the peace and quiet. The politics of that particular issue, I think, becomes much more of an issue. And also, how do you how do you install a hyperloop or high-speed transportation? I mean, Chicago's supposed to get one from downtown to, to O'Hare. <laughs> yeah. It'll yeah, never, I'm ever happen. That, Ian. No, I mean, uh, I mean, this is one of those things that and I, I can I will feel. Bring, I will bring the champagne to that celebration. I mean, I would follow. We, I mean, what? Ten years ago, we were supposed to get an express train to run on the CTA tracks. Now it's you know what whatever. I'm sorry that Elon Musk has chosen your home city to be the target of his latest version of vaporware. It doesn't bother me. What what makes me sad is the people who really believe that it's going to happen. And there are so many of them. But that's a I'm whole, not sure which I'd rather have more. Thing, the, I think. the the uh, ambition and hope that they would build a hyperloop to O'Hare. Or ending up with the reality that is the backwards air train to LaGuardia, which is worse. I don't know. If you don't get anything built, you're not stuck with it for 100 years. I feel like we win in that particular situation. Yeah. Depends on how many billions are spent. Too many. Well, as, as long as it's Elon's money, he can spend as much as he wants. I think he's going for government money. That's the whole thing. Uh, okay. Well, in that case, I need to go figure out my alternative to Hyperloop. Yes. Your taxes just went up. Wow. Yeah, it's a whole other story. So, we, we've talked a lot about Dubai, but what about Abu Dhabi? I mean, are we setting them up for this were to go ahead? Does that airport just kind of go away? I mean, could you put in a high-speed pod-like transportation between Dubai and Abu Dhabi and then DWC becomes – it stays the cargo airport? I mean – Sure. What, uh, I mean, right? It's, it's I mean, just an extra 20 yeah. miles. So, if you're going fast enough, it doesn't matter. So, so that seems like it, I don't know, could be a possibility. But, but I also feel like the political consideration here is one of the stronger ones against a takeover happening. Because you don't think the, the government get along? I don't even know if it's a getting along thing, but I mean, it might even just be a pride thing. Like, hey, my airline is, you know, I, I don't want it to, to go away. Yeah. I guess I, I certainly understand that. But at some point after you burn a few billion dollars on Alitalia and Air Berlin and Air Serbia, Air Serbia and Jet, Jet Airways and yeah. Etihad Regional and Air Seychelles. And I'm I not could sure go Air Seychelles is burning yet, though. No, they've completely restructured and got rid of the Did we mention Air Berlin? We did no, mention Air Berlin. Berlin. Okay. Yeah, we started okay. with Air Berlin okay. and we will always end with Air Berlin. See, the list was, the list was so long, yeah, I forgot we that lost we had already. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. my, my point is, after you've burnt, I mean, and yes, they have plenty of oil and gas and whatever, but at some point, I think Pride also says, I'm going to stop burning money just for fun. Right. And remember, right, they've right. been a, building a their here, terminal for a while now, and it's not, I don't even think it's open yet. Not. So they will have an entire glittery new terminal that uh, maybe never opens. Like Berlin. <laughs> like Berlin. That's like a whole a whole podcast episode. It all comes right there. back to Berlin. 
I feel like that this is one. There's so many moving pieces here that it's you know there isn't going to be any quick resolution to to any of this. But I feel like the the worst thing that could happen is that they merge and the anti head livery goes away. Yeah, that would suck. That livery is still, I think, my favorite out there. It just looks great on nearly every plane. I'd like to see it on a regional jet somehow. I'm sure that somebody on the internet has has I was mocked say, that. Which, which flight simulator program would you like that loaded? I into? mean, Emirates has the little jet trainers for their pilot school. Does Eddie Head have anything like that? I don't know. That's a good question. On that note, on that note, gentlemen, I will let you go enjoy the rest of your evening at the Apex Expo in Boston and, and the next couple of days. Stay tuned in our next episode for anything that, that Jason and Seth might find above and beyond magic bin smoke detectors and things like that. We'll talk about those in the next episode. So, guys, thanks for joining me from the Expo. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 41 of AvTalk. We've been joined by special guest Seth Miller. Seth, tell everyone where they can find you. On the internet. Uh, where on where the, on the internet, internet can uh, they find Twitter you? Twitter at W-A-N-D-R-M-E. It's terrible to spell, but way fun to read. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Jason, Seth, have a, a wonderful time at the Expo. Everyone, thank you so very much for listening. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rubenowitz, and thank you again. Bye, Ian. Bye.